I wonder uh, how you introduce yourself to other people. If you meet people or uh, you come across one another, I just wonder how you introduce yourself. My neighbour is called Gareth, and I think I've spoken about him before, but um, he said to me a few months ago, he said, I know you're a pastor, but what do you do? (laughs) Yeah, well, there we have a discussion point. If you'd like to gather in little groups and... (laughs) What do you actually do? And it was a, it's a reasonable question, isn't it? I know your title. What do you do? Well, I kind of tried to explain what I do. But actually, in terms of introducing myself, it's not enough. Because I'm more than a pastor. I'm a husband. I'm a father. I'm a grandfather. I am a pastor. I'm a friend. I'm a sometime writer. I'm a sometime consultant. I'm a sometime external speaker. I'm a would-be runner. I'm a Spurs supporter. I love Bob Dylan, Bruce Springsteen and James Taylor and sad ladies singing folk songs. I'm an avid reader. I'm all of that and more. In other words, to know me, to really know me, You need to know so many more things than just one thing. Between now and Christmas, I want to do that work of just looking at who's Jesus. When the gospel writers were bringing their material together, they left massive gaps in the story of Jesus. Stuff that you would love to know. Stuff that Dan Brown has written about. You'd love to know what was he doing between 12 and 30 years old? Gospel writers just tend not to want to tell us. Or sometimes they go in great depth. So half of Mark's gospel chapter 8 onwards really um, is pretty much about one week and you kind of go well it's great to have that much detail but could you not give us that about everything I think that sometimes what the gospel writers do is they drop things into their story that as a reader you're either expected to know or you're kind of intrigued enough to go and find out And I think when they start introducing Jesus, they do exactly that. Now, I'm not going to do this randomly. What I'm going to do for the next few weeks, and others will preach as well, but what we're going to do together is we're going to look at two chapters, Matthew 1 and 2. Because when Matthew starts telling the story of Jesus, he drops in hints, little bombs that explode with meaning, if you so are inclined to think about them. In Matthews 1 and 2, there are six titles of Jesus. He's Emmanuel. He's a saviour. He's a child. He's the king. He's the Nazarene. And he's the Messiah. 
the word for Messiah or Christ, which is uh, the Messiah is sort of like the Hebrew understanding of it. Christ is the Greek word for it, or the word we translate from Greek. But crops up 500 times in the New Testament. Sometimes it's Jesus who is the Christ, and sometimes it's just like Jesus Christ. It's almost the understanding of Jesus' Messiah becomes so closely linked with who Jesus was that it's almost like a second name. I think that's how sometimes people think of Jesus. What's Jesus' second name? Christ. But of course it was a title. Messiah literally means anointed one. Someone smeared with oil. Set apart. It happened in the Old Testament to leaders who were set apart to deliver a nation. It, was, it happened to priests. It happened to kings. It happened to anybody who would get us out of the mess we're in. A Messiah would come and be anointed. And we would look to them. Can you get us out of the mess we're in? They would be literally the ones who would set things right. Lots of you have been Christians for a long time and so you know your Bibles quite well. And uh, lots of you who from time to time, and January's coming, so those of you that feel like you've let it slip a bit, January's coming, you can start again. But some of you will start in the New Testament and you'll go, right, this is the year I'm going to read this New Testament. And um, it really doesn't encourage you, does it? Because the first thing that you come across in the New Testament is a genealogy in Matthew. Now, we have put a lot of readers through a lot of things over these months, reading from the book of Nehemiah, and I thought we would give everybody a bit of a break. Because essentially, what Matthew, the way Matthew starts his gospel is simply with a list of names, which in truth, most of which don't mean that much to us. So it's an interesting way to begin. When he tells the genealogy, he has three big moments and one huge moment. He does a genealogy from Abraham through to King David, through to the exile, through to Jesus. Three big moments of Jewish history. Abraham, the father of a nation. David, the brilliant king of the nation. Exile, the moment of despair for a nation. And Jesus, the hero of Matthew's story. And when you start looking at it, what you realize very quickly is that Matthew is not doing what we might expect, which is to put everybody's name in. He's really careful. There are 14, two names between Abraham and exile, and there's 14 in each section. And he's missed people out. He's sort of like gone from great-grandfathers to grandsons without anything in between. But anybody who knows that Old Testament story knows that what Matthew does is he tells the story of the good, the bad, and the downright ugly. Give you a flavor. 
Abraham was the father of Isaac, Isaac the father of Jacob, Jacob the father of Judah and his brothers, Judah the father of Perez and Zerah, Perez the father of Hezron, Hezron the father of Ram, Ram the father of Aminadab, Aminadab the father of Nashon, Nashon the father of Salmon, Salmon the father of Boaz, Boaz the father of Obed, Obed the father of Jesse, Jesse the father of King David, David was the father of Solomon and so it goes. And in January, you're thinking, maybe this is a really bad idea of starting here. In many ways, it's exactly what you expect. It's just a list of names. If you've read the Old Testament, you've come across them there lots of times. But what Matthew does is really quite interesting because he puts some side swipes in. Abraham, the father of Isaac. Isaac, the father of Jacob. Jacob, the father of Judah and his brothers. Judah, the father of Perez and Zerah, whose mother was Tamar. Now, for those of us who don't know Jewish genealogy, you kind of would carry on reading almost without a blink. But if you were aware of it, you might just be jolted. He'll do it again. Salmon, the father of Boaz, whose mother was was Rahab. Boaz, the father of Obed, whose mother was Ruth. Jesse, the father of King David. David was the father of Solomon, whose mother had been Uriah's wife. Why does Matthew do this? Matthew is beginning to prepare you for the story of Jesus. He's not interested just in Jewish history. He's really interested in Jesus. And he's really interested in Jesus, who's writing... Uh, in his, uh, uh, writing a gospel about Jesus who will call you to be his disciple. So why do this? Why bother? You've only got 28 chapters. Why bother with a whole chapter of names and why bother with these sideswipes? Why bother including these four women? He doesn't explain. He doesn't tell you the backstory. He expects you to do the groundwork. He expects you to make the links. He expects you to understand the hints. He's dropping the bombs. He's expecting you to work out why. Tamar. Who was Tamar? Tamar was a foreign woman who married into a Jewish family who had one husband and he died and then another husband and then he died and she's defenseless a defenseless widow and she says to her father-in-law can you help and the father-in-law thinks I'm grieving two sons I don't want to give another son to this woman And he says to her, Judah, says to this woman, listen, I have got another son, but wait until he grows up. Wait 10 years. We'll look after you, but wait 10 years. And after 10 years or so, 10 years is a guess, Judah goes, no, you're not having him. Because what if he dies too? And Tamar is a woman left. She's been in limbo and she's absolutely left defenseless. 
So what Tamar does is a story that you don't want to tell in Sunday school. <laughs> so what Tamar does is she dresses up as a prostitute at a side of a road where she knows Judah is going to be. And Judah goes by, sees this woman, doesn't recognize that this is his daughter-in-law, and sleeps with her. And um, in lieu of payment, Tamar says, can you leave me your rod and a cloak? Can you just give me some sort of deposit? And he does. And later it becomes a scandal. And Judah goes, we need, to, we need to get rid of this woman, this prostitute. It's not good enough in our society. And Judah says, let's root out the man who did it. It was like a commission of um, you know, an independent inquiry into the doings of a government. Maybe. And Tamar comes forward and says, well, the man who slept with me owns these. And Judah, red-faced, recognizes his own duplicity, recognizes what he'd done wrong, recognized that he hadn't cared in the societal way that he should have done for this woman. And he recognized that this woman was strong and determined and he, as much as he could, he put things right. Well, we're talking about um, women who have to do things that perhaps they would never have wanted to do. Matthew includes another woman who was also a prostitute called Rahab, who is a Canaanite. And when the spies go into the land and go, we're working out the land, there's two of them that stay in her lodging house. Maybe they slept with her. When the Canaanites come and say, we've heard there's spies here, she protects them. And she sends them off in the wrong direction. Here's a woman who's an outsider, prostitute, defending men. And she's included in the genealogy. And Ruth, you know the story of Ruth. An outsider, a foreigner, who comes and is defenseless and works out a way that she will be married. I, I, I love the book of Ruth and I... We could spend a long time on this, and I'm, I'm going to s- stop this, except to say, some people see Ruth as this sort of like naive young girl. I don't. I think she was determined, and I think she knew that actually Boaz, who should be the one who does the right thing for her, she could persuade him and make him do the right thing for her. And Bathsheba. A woman that um, King David saw bathing on the roof when he should have been at war with his armies. But instead, he had an illicit affair 
and it all ended in disaster. What have they got in common? They're outsiders, they're foreigners. They have to work out what's right and how, in some ways, do we get the men to do what's right. Certainly the first three women all make the men do the right thing. At the time, they are determined and they are suspect. Jesus say, and, and Matthew says, just bear in mind those women when I start talking about Jesus. In our house, we enjoy this program. I don't know if you watch it. Who do you think you are? And they take people and they find stories in their past. And uh, every week at the end of it, when it's over, there's some sort of like little music playing gently in the background as they muse upon who they found in their line. It was said explicitly this week. Um, Joe Lysett asked uh, or said as part of his discovery about his own lineage, he said, I wonder if there's anything of me there. What the, all these celebrities who do this genealogy work want to do is find out, is there something of me there in all that's gone behind? And I think Matthew does the same because there's a fifth woman. And he finishes the genealogy like this. Jacob, the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary. Mary was the mother of Jesus, who's called the Messiah, I want to keep using that language of the leader who can set things right. Jacob is the father of Joseph, the husband of Mary. Mary was the mother of Jesus, who's called the leader who can set things right. Thus there were 14 generations in all, from Abraham to David, 14 from David to, from, uh, to the exile to Babylon, 14 from the exile to the leader who can set things right. Can this leader set things right can the leader who's born in scandal to a woman you know the Christmas story as well as I do I don't need to go into it but he's born in scandal a man who stands with the women the excluded women the outside women the women who are suspect the women who are determined and Jesus is always the one who stands with those women Jesus, the leader who will set all things right, who reaches the excluded, the leader who will set all things right, who dies with the damned. The two thieves. The leader who sets all things right, who saves from sin. The leader who sets all things right, who rescues from evil. This week, these people, plus many others, have met in Glasgow at COP26. They are the leaders that the world are looking to, to set things right. I wonder what the leader who came to set things right might say what might the leader who came to set things right 
say to COP26. The leader who came and sat stood with the poor. The leader who came to the disadvantaged. The leader who came to the morally dubious. The leader who had much to say to the rich. The leader who had much to say to the luxury. What would the leader who came to set things right say in Glasgow when we're in a mess? What might the leader who came to set things right say to you? In any group of this sort of size, it's inevitable that some of you have got secrets in your family that you regret. You have a personal history that you just would wish people wouldn't ask about. And when they do, you sort of gloss over it. Because you feel in some ways it's too, too compromising. I can't tell you what's going on in my family. Because if you knew, you would say it was my fault. So I'd rather not tell you. Some of you know that pain of your immediate family now. Some of you know that pain of your parents and their generation. And the way things were never talked about because it's just not right, is it? What would the leader who came to set things right say to you? To you that actually, and let's be honest, when I say you, what I mean is we. When we have those areas of our own life that we would really wish we could just keep personal, private. Because to be honest, if we started to tell one another, we'd just feel ashamed. What does a leader who came to set things right say to us? Why does Matthew include these stories? Is it because he actually says to you and to I, listen, I've not just come for the kings, because the rest of them, they were kings. I've not just come for the men who needed to be remembered. I've come for the shameful stories, and I wrap them up into my own story, and somehow they become redeemed the best language we say to one another is this also can be redeemed this also can be redeemed it's not a hopeless case it's not just hopelessly meaningless it too can be redeemed what would the leader who came to set things right say to you And then finally, what would the leader who came to set things right say to us? On Thursday, a group of us, an increasing group of us, which is brilliant, came to pray and to prophesy and to hear from God. And in the stillness of the time we had together, together what we were feeling was perhaps not... um, Terribly unusual, but what we were sensing was an invitation from Jesus to look more closely at him. When I was preparing the sermon before Thursday, this is what I felt 
the Lord might be saying to us as a church. Will you welcome the tired? Will you expect the worn out? Will you help those who are burnt out on religion? Will you come with them to me? Will you walk with me? Will you work with me? Will you watch how I do it? Will you learn the unforced rhythms of grace? I think the Messiah, the one who would come to set things right, is the one who can make sense of the climate crisis. I think he is the one that can make sense of our longer histories. I think he is the one who would speak to our church. You see, we're not significant in anybody else's eyes. We've not got a lot of power. We've not got any power. We can't make anything particularly happen. But what we can do is open up our hearts to the one who can set things right. And then all sorts of things can happen that we might really be surprised by. I think this is what the Lord might want to say.